Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Rudolf Delson, and I'm going to be reading today from my novel, Maynard and Jenica. It's a comedy, and uh, in particular, it's a comedy about a misanthrope named Maynard Gogarty and a romantic named uh, Jenica Green. And it tells the story of what happens when they meet each other. The novel is told by 30-odd characters, each of whom have their own idiosyncrasies and their own means of expressing themselves. And the section I'm going to be reading uh, is going to introduce us to four or five or six of those. Um, When this uh, section begins, Jenica Green is sitting on a uh, subway in New York City heading uptown. And she's just received a letter from her long-lost high school friend, Nadine Hanamoto. And in the letter, Nadine has suggested that Jenica should meet up with um, Nadine's brother, George Hanamoto. Um, So Jenica's on the subway, and we begin with her parents. Mitchell and Susan Green discuss their daughter's aspirations to illustriousness, early August 2000. Mitchell, she was reading those particular books that high schools still think the teenagers need to read, Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre and Great Expectations, and she came away with the lesson that we, as a family, had done something wrong, that there wasn't more intrigue in our lives. She read Madame Bovary, and the lesson she came away with was that Emma Bovary was a perfectly reasonable woman. Susan, what she really enjoyed were all those books by J.D. Salinger. Mitchell, the Greens are not illustrious. There was about six months when that was her refrain, her constant refrain. She thought it would be romantic if there were invading armies we had to flee or if there were, Susan, she wanted to join the leisure class. Mitchell, or if we were winning a fortune shipping boatloads of spice on the high seas or if the family was harboring an assassin or if there was incest secretly afoot, Susan, and there was incest secretly afoot on your side, Mitchell. What? Simi and Lala? Susan, well, Mitchell, that was no secret. They, they bragged about it. My, my father's parents were first cousins. Susan, Jenica thought we led boring lives. What do you tell a 16-year-old? Be grateful you live in peace and comfort and expect that to be the end of it? Nothing interesting ever happens to us, Jenica said. All you and dad ever did was go to college and buy a house and have us. I told her she she could say whatever she wanted to to us since we were her parents, but that she shouldn't go around telling other people that she thought they led boring lives because she would hurt someone's feelings. And she said, well, at least hurting someone's feelings would be interesting. What do you say to that? Mitchell, and it's not as if our family is notable for its ordinariness. I mean, the stories your family has about the war? Susan, or that cousin of yours? Mitchell, cousin of mine? Susan, in Israel with the skin disease and and the spa? Mitchell, oh, he is a freak. Robbie, with, with his friends from Est? Susan, Robbie, oh, he was awful. And those showers we had to use? Mitchell, 1981. Susan and I went to Israel and left the kids with Susan's parents. We, we visited my cousin Robbie at a spa outside of Haifa. These people at this spa, they thought that magnetized mud would halt the spread of certain cancers. This kind of 
pathetic fantasy, people dying for their ignorance, just losing weight and disassembling their minds out there in the desert, talking in est jargon about the chemotherapy conspiracy over dinner at their communal cafeteria. Susan, and what dinners? Quinoa with yeast sauce, kelp salad. Mitchell, Robbie's spa was macrobiotic. He served seaweed grown at some awful kibbutz somewhere that he wanted to take us to visit. The only Jewish, socialist, solar-powered aquaculture tanks in the world. In his converted Toyota pickup, he wanted to drive us halfway across Israel with his Russian girlfriend, who was the worst of them all, a wraith of a woman talking about Talmud and rising signs versus moon signs and Kabbalistic poetry, as if she'd only learned to speak English from Robbie himself. Susan, oh, I am so glad that we left Israel and got that ticket to Rome instead. Mitchell, what a tragedy, though, that we left Gabe and Jenica behind. That trip would have taught Jenica something about illustriousness. Susan, we told her. My mother and her parents escaped Hitler. Your father's grandparents moved to the Bronx from Russia with nothing and worked in cigar factories and pencil factories. My father's family has that whole fascinating side in Venezuela, the ranchers and the one cousin in New Zealand. And Jenica says, it's just you guys who are boring. It's just my parents. The whole Green family is interesting except for my parents. What do you say to that? But, but you know, see what she likes about New York City, Mitchell. And, and since when aren't we interesting? Nadine Hanamoto weighs whether or not the Greens were illustrious early August 2000. I don't think Jenny ever appreciated that she lived in a house where no one was insane. I mean, you'd go over to the Greens, you'd open their refrigerator. I mean, my family's refrigerator was like some gross burned fried rice that my mom made, my dad's beer, some like limp cellar, you know, ants on a log, where you fill a celery stalk with peanut butter and sprinkle it with raisins. If you made ants on a log at my family's house, the celery would be the least crunchy part. But but you'd go over to the Greens, you'd open their huge new refrigerator, and in the condiments compartment, like pickled herring, pickled grape leaves, four kinds of mustard, salsa de nopales, anchovy paste, smoked riga sprats, some jar filled with Susan Green's homemade mayonnaise, every single possible variety of salad dressing, Susan Green's homemade jams with those labels that Gabe created with their dot matrix printer and for each individual jar of jam. And, And that was just the condiments in the meat drawer, all these White packages, deli-wrapped, smoked salmon, Havarti, roast beef, head cheese, two different kinds of salami, a whole real liver forest, blood sausage, gorgonzola, three kinds of brie, deli pickles. You open up their pantry doors. It's like Nutella. And three kinds of rye bread and four different kinds of vinegar and a complete Tupperware dream set filled with three kinds of rice and two kinds of sugar and four kinds of flour and whole wheat wagon wheel pasta and tomato infused fettuccine and spinach infused spaghetti and a mountain of ramen. The Tupperware sales guy would open this pantry and he would stand tippy toe with pride. This is the Green's kitchen. I'd be over there and I would be 
pleading with Jenny to let me eat, but there was always some reason why we had to wait. I'd be like, please, just let me have some blue cheese on these wheat thins. Jenny'd be like, no, I think my mom is making schmuchelblerchel tonight, so we should wait, but you can have an olive maybe. So I'm, I'm devouring the greens olives, famished. Jenny is eating nothing. Susan Green would come over with a paper sack full of groceries. I'd be like, why? Why? Why is she buying more when there's this whole gorgeous picnic in the fridge? And Susan Green would be like, well, Nadine, you can have those olives if you want. But tonight I'm making schmuchelblerchel. It didn't matter what was for dinner. It was always worse than what was already in the fridge because Susan Green cooked some weird shit. Jenny and Game were totally brainwashed. Susan would be like, you should stay for dinner, Nadine. Tonight we're having the apricot dish. And she'd be chopping apricots into a frying pan full of like ground turkey sautéed in cumin. And Mitchell Green would come home from work and be like, oh, it smells like the apricot dish. Let's put on La Traviata. And then they'd all start arguing about which opera to listen to while eating the apricot dish. Gabe would say, so long as there are no arias in a minor key, because minor keys inhibit digestion. I'd be like, what are these people talking about? And and Jenny would be saying, oh, and the best thing to go with the apricot dish is the goat milk's yogurt. And Mitch would be like, I agree, and start burrowing around in their fridge for their goat milk's yogurt, which they had. So Jenny and I would set the table with napkins and napkin rings and, and wooden bowls for the salad. And then at 7 p.m. sharp, They'd all sit down together at this little table for six, Susan and Mitchell and Jenny and Gabe and me. And then on the sixth chair, they would pot balance all 19 kinds of salad dressing that they'd brought out for Susan's like shiitake mushroom and red bean salad. And out would come the schmuchelblerchel and out would come the apricot dish and some mashed potatoes. And they'd all be like, yum, the apricot dish. I'd be like, why? Why are we eating fried apricots and turkey and goat milk's yogurt when there is deli meat right in the fridge and rye bread in the pantry and and the greens are not insane like my family so why why must we suffer but meanwhile Mitchell will be like Nadine this is an important aria this is where Violetta declares the folly of love and he starts singing along I'd be making myself swallow the schmuchelblerchel and thinking about pastrami and mustard in my house Dinner was at like 11 p.m. My mom would burn some rice and eat it in front of the TV. Setting the table meant like asking my sister to move over on the couch. My sister who would be eating ants on a log. Jenica Green again fails to explain what she was doing on an uptown number six train early August 2000. And here's why I can't explain it just like that, because I have to explain about California before I can explain about New York or like about San Jose before about Manhattan. I mean, San Jose. I am from San Jose, California, a a city of never quite one million people. Well, city, municipality, sunny quiet, always a little brisk at night, and the summer's never humid with lawns and with lanes all spread out sort of low across the flats of this valley, the Santa Clara Valley, where before I was born, there were orchards. And there was such a sense of shame about the orchards. The first mention by any of my teachers of, like, the deportation of San Jose's Japantown in World War II That's junior year of high school. But the first mention of the annihilation of Santa Clara Valley's orchards, second grade, 
Mrs. Rapp, Trace Elementary. We thought, we thought Mrs. Rapp was mean because she made us do multiplication a year early. And because she yelled at us sometimes. She had this allergy to chalk dust, so she used the dust-free kind, which was shinier and, and crumblier than regular chalk, but which made that horrible noise on the chalkboard. But if we even peeped when her chalk inevitably scratched, she would yell at us. And she would yell at us if we called her Mrs. instead of Ms., like, I learned your name, you should learn mine. But despite all of that, she maintained some popularity because she had these two Great Danes, these mammoth Great Danes that she would bring to school once or twice a year and let even the small, let the smallest kindergartners ride like they were ponies during recess. For example, Nadine Hanamoto. Nadine was tiny enough that she got to ride Mrs. Rapp's Great Danes when we were all in kindergarten, although she and I actually only became friends later. But Anyway, Mrs. Rapp was forever nostalgic about the orchards, cherry and apricot and pear orchards, and along the ridges of the Santa Clara Valley to the south and to the east, these cattle ranches on estates granted by the King of Spain. Mrs. Rapp was forever waxing sappy, forever making us do coloring projects involving the Spanish missions and local fruits and fruit blossoms. She told us that it was our civic duty to save the coastal redwoods because they were the last real trees left. That the history is that between the world wars, developers started cutting down all of the fruit trees in Santa Clara Valley and subdividing the orchard. So by the time I got to high school in 1986, you could more or less tell the age of the trees in San Jose by the age of the houses they were next to. Like, oh, that's an Eichler from the 50s, so that maple must be in its 30s. Eichler was this notorious developer, to be mentioned only with distaste. It was a point of ridiculous pride in my family that our house was built in 1924 and was in the Rose Garden District, which Eichler hardly touched, and their house had wood frame windows, not aluminum frames like the Eichlers, and that instead of having a, a swimming pool in our backyard, we had cherry trees and a cement fountain of a shepherd pulling a thorn from his foot that must have come from some 1920s Sears Roebuck catalog, but we were proud of it, and and I knew about all of this before I knew how to multiply. I knew about Eichlers and wood frame windows and fruit trees versus shade trees. And if there was a big earthquake, I knew how to turn off the gas. I mean, just this atmosphere of desolation in San Jose as a teenager. In 1985, when I was 13, the city of San Jose started this redevelopment campaign. San Jose is growing up with a purple and pink logo that was the exact color combination I would have picked for my bat mitzvah if I actually had a bat mitzvah. The city planted these sycamores, these gangling sycamores along 1st Street and San Carlos Avenue, and they proposed a new downtown convention center and a new downtown shopping concourse and a new downtown light rail corridor, and the Fairmont built a 20-story hotel on Market Street. It was San Jose's tallest building, 20 stories, salmon pink, with an open-air swimming pool on its fourth-floor patio. After the, the graduation ceremony from middle school, from Herbert Hoover Middle School, the dare was to sneak into the Fairmont Hotel and go for a swim, except that no one would admit to knowing what county bus line would get us from our graduation ceremony over to the Fairmont because familiarity with the county bus lines was shameful. So instead, we all walked over to the Russicrucian Museum, which was right by Hoover, 20 or 30 of us, in our navy blue vinyl graduation gowns, and we kicked each other with the chlorinated water from the fountain surrounding the Russicrucian statue of the hippopotamus god. And then we went home, and we felt exquisitely desolate, and we waited for high school to start. This is San Jose. This is where I'm from.
To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.